Okay, uh, let's go to God in prayer now as we uh, ask Him to help us to understand His Word. Dear Father, as we come before You, as we look at the death of Jesus, dear Father, help us to concentrate, to see what it really means for us, to see what the death of Jesus is really about. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, both my mother and my mother-in-law both suffered from cancer and they both underwent treatment at different times. And I remember once when my children were quite young and uh, we were having dinner with one of my uh, mothers, uh, we were trying to encourage this particular mother to, to go out more and to, to, to enjoy themselves after they had the chemotherapy and to go to, I guess, uh, not be stuck at home, but to go outside and to enjoy life and not to mope around. So one of my kids, who was very young at the time, and I won't mention who, said, That's right, Amma. You should go outside and stuff yourself with all the best food, and then you can die. Right. Uh, so we were all very shocked at what he said. Even the, the other brother jumped out and said, oh, How can you say that? That's terrible, right? And I think that, uh, in a sense, we, we find it very hard to talk about death. We find it very hard to speak of death, even when death is really staring us in the face. But today, as we look at the passage in John chapter 12, really, it's, it's not about Jesus' anointing, it's not about Jesus' triumphal entry, it's really all about death. Jesus' death, and what it has to do with our death. So it begins in uh, verse 1 to 8, which is the, the first section, which talks about Jesus and how he goes to Bethany. Now, if you look at uh, this map, which is up here, Bethany, uh, which is actually, by the way, the name of our church, right, is here. Okay, the next slide. Uh, you can go to the next one, actually. The next slide. Ah, okay. So you see that actually Bethany was just outside of Jerusalem. It's like the outskirts of Jerusalem. A bit like what Johor would be to Singapore, I suppose. Something like that. Huh? And the reason why Jesus had left Jerusalem to go to Bethany, if you recall, was because the religious authorities in Jerusalem were hunting Jesus down in order to kill him. But here he went to Bethany, as you can see in verse 1, that Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here was a dinner that was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among them, reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared for the, about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that you save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, here we see that there was a very special dinner held in that town of Bethany. And it was a special dinner because of the guests of honor. It was Jesus and also Lazarus who was there because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And many people probably from that town had come to this dinner. Now, it was a very unusual dinner because at that time, uh, as you can see from this picture, next slide, right, uh, this is, uh, anybody can recognize this? That's by Da Vinci, right? Okay, 
So you all need a bit of culture. Okay, this is Leonardo da Vinci, The Last Supper. What's wrong with this picture? They're all sitting down like European aristocrats, right? Having dinner at the table. But this is not the way that uh, the people ate in the ancient world. This is how they ate in the ancient world. Right, next slide. They used to, to lie down. See how they're all sort of like lounging around, around a raised table. Okay? And here Mary, uh, Mary was Lazarus' brother. Do you remember a few chapters back? Right, Mary met your sister. Mary was uh, Lazarus' sister. Remember how she talked to Jesus and said, you know, you could have healed my brother if you came earlier? Well, here she does a, a supreme and extraordinary thing. She gets a per- bottle of perfume and it says in the book of John that she poured it on, her f- on his feet, isn't it? Verse 3. Uh, but later on, actually, uh, in verse 7, we, we realize that actually the perfume was poured over her whole body. Uh, his whole body, sorry. And that's what the other Gospels also focus on. The, the pouring of the body and uh, sometimes in another Gospel, the pouring over the head. But the, the point of it all was that Mary used perfume to anoint Jesus, whether his feet, his head, or his body, all the same thing. Now this was an act of extreme generosity. We know from this passage in the book of John that this perfume, as it says there, in verse 3, was an expensive perfume. In other parts of the Bible, it says that this perfume was worth one year's of wage. Now, this perfume was probably something which was like a family heirloom. You know, sometimes you see advertisements of people saying that, oh, you know, you, you wear some very expensive watch. I don't know what's an expensive watch. But, you know, you pass it down from generation to generation. Well, this perfume was a bit like that. Because the perfume that she had was not a small vial of... Okay, I bought this for my wife, right? It's not like this, you know, small uh, little things of perfume, which still cost a lot of money, right? But the perfume, as it says there, was about this size of perfume. Okay, this is how much perfume that uh, Mary probably had. And it, it didn't have a, a cap, which you could sort of screw and use like a thousand times before it ran out. It just, it was all one piece and you broke off the neck. And once you opened it, that was it. You had to use it that day. And, uh, and, and, and it, was, it was finished. Right, one year's wage, gone down the drain. But here, Mary takes this very, very valuable family heirloom or whatever and pours all this perfume onto Jesus. And that's why it says there that the fragrance of the perfume filled the whole house. Now, we see here that uh, obviously people around Jesus objected to this. A blatant waste of money, they said. It was around the Passover, it says, in verse 1. And Passover was a time where Poor people received alms from the rich. Right? It was a time where people gave to the poor. And here Judas says, you know, hey, we could have sold this perfume on eBay or carousel and we could have gotten all this money and we could have given it away to the poor. But Jesus in verse 7 says a really profound thing. And this verse is something which sums up this whole section of chapter 12, right? Leave her alone. It, is intend, it was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. Now, in this one verse, it is pregnant with meaning, right? It's got so much meaning in this verse because it tells us so much about what Jesus is doing, his identity and his future. The first thing is, obviously, it tells us about Jesus and his divine-like awareness of the future. 
At this point in the story, uh, in chapter 11, we know that the, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the religious teachers, they're all plotting to kill Jesus. But they still don't know how they're going to do it or when it's going to happen or if it's going to happen. But Jesus, with his div- divine knowledge, knows that it is going to be very soon. And the, and the passage hints about how it's going to happen because it is going to come through the greed of Judas. But I think more than that, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, this passage is all about the death of Jesus. And Jesus knows that he will die very soon because he is anointed with the perfume that Mary has given him. And with this anointing, it prepares his body for his death. Now, I think that uh, for many of us, when we read this passage, we think, okay, yeah, this uh, all sounds very good. You know, you anoint the body with perfume and you're going to die. But it also tells us something about the type of death Jesus foresaw he would die. You see, in the ancient world, I guess even like today, uh, when a normal person dies, there is usually time for the body to be prepared. And you know, like even today, when, when, when someone dies, your relative or your friend, what happens? You send them to, to the embalmer or whatever, and they prepare the body, right? And the body is then displayed for a few days. But Jesus knew that he would die a criminal's death. Because in the ancient world, when criminals die, they did not receive the proper care and attention that a normal person received when they died. And that's why Jesus says that she's preparing my body for my death, because when Jesus died, it was a rush job to put him into the tomb, and that was it, isn't it? So he was actually saying that the type of death he would receive would be as a criminal. Now isn't it amazing, the foreknowledge of Jesus, that he knows how he was going to die, when he was going to die, and what sort of death he was going to die. And he knew that it was all part of God's sovereignty, that Mary, instead of using this perfume to give to the poor, would actually anoint his body in preparation for his death. Now, the story goes on, and very soon after, the very next day, we find ourselves with Jesus, with a very large crowd, heading to Jerusalem for the festival. Now, if you look at this uh, passage, uh, I want you to put yourself in the scene right now. You, you probably ask yourself, well, in a few days later, why did this crowd then reject Jesus? Well, I think that the crowd that rejected Jesus might have been a, a very different crowd from this crowd. You see, during the festival time, if you see here in verse 12, the great crowd that had come from, from, for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took out palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, if you look at this passage, what was happening was, if you look up again at the slide, the map, right? Can you show, show the map again, Nick? Sorry, up. Uh, if they're going to the, the festival, the Passover festival, the feast, um, it would be a huge crowd of people would be making their way to Jerusalem. From what we understand uh, from uh, the past archaeologists, uh, during the Passover, the the population of Jerusalem swelled up five times of its population. So in about 60 AD, apparently, uh, the population of Jerusalem was about half a million. But during that Passover, it swelled up to 2.7 million people. 
It just shows you how big a crowd it was that streams into Jerusalem for the biggest feast that they have, the Passover feast. And this crowd that came in were not native Jerusalem dwellers, but these people that came in were people who had probably seen Jesus' miracles. They were probably people from Galilee, people from Bethany, people who had known Lazarus, and they came with Jesus and they were like supporting him. And they had these palm branches and they were waving it at Jesus. And what were they expecting? Well, so if you look at the picture next, right? Okay, so they're all waving at Jesus. The waving of the palm branches, uh, which is not found in the Bible, but found out other places of the Bible, was, was generally used as a symbol of kingship. Right? It's like, uh, uh, no, we're not use this illustration. Uh, it's, like, it's like, okay, let's say, you know, you see someone coming and, and, and as a mark of respect, right, you wave these palm branches and these palm branches mean something. It is a recognition of, of, of rule over you, like a powerful king coming in your midst. And that's what they did for those kings coming in during that time. So when they wave these, pink king, uh, these uh, palm branches, they're actually speaking of Jesus being a great king. And the king that they expect, if you look at the quotes here, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel, is a powerful nationalistic military political king like King David. That is the sort of king that the people are expecting. But then we're given a very strange picture, isn't it? Because in verse 14 it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, why did Jesus get on a young donkey to ride into town? Uh, is it because, you know, like, he was pretty tired and they didn't have electric buggies at the time or something? You know, he just needed some form of transportation to come into the city? No, right? It was very unusual, if you look at these pictures, the next slide, for, uh, from what we understand, for people to come into the city riding donkeys. It's not a normal thing. And the reason why Jesus rode on this donkey was to fulfill prophecy found in the book of Zechariah of the type of king that he would be. A king which was very different from the political, military king that the crowd was expecting when they were waving their palm branches. And this king which you can see up here, was a righteous king, a saving king, a gentle king, riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. You see, a political king, a military king, would ride on a war horse or a chariot, a great mighty steed. But you never see kings riding on donkeys, right? I mean, there's no war donkey, right? Okay, I mean, they're war horses, they're chariots, but you don't see kings, powerful figures riding on donkeys. But Jesus is not that sort of king. He's not a military, powerful king. He is a, a righteous king, a gentle king who brings salvation. And again, if you look closely and you read closely, you see that it is only because of his death that people could look back, the disciples could look back and understand why Jesus rode on that donkey's colt. 
And verse 16 is that it was only after he was glorified that they realized that these things had been written upon about him. Because it was only after he went to the cross they could see the righteousness of Jesus, the gentleness of Jesus, and how Jesus saved. That he didn't come to save from Roman oppression or Roman rule or Roman uh, military might, but he came to save them in a very, very different way. And that's what brings us now to the next section. right? Because in verse 20 to 28, we see that Jesus again talks about his death. Now it says there were some Greeks among those who had come up to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus didn't say, okay, come back tomorrow at 3 o'clock, you've got an appointment with me. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, it says here that Jesus um, truly understood what was to happen. The trigger for Jesus to die was the coming of these Greek people. Now, if you've actually been following what's been happening so far in the book of John, you see that one phrase that keeps being repeated over and over and over again is that the hour is not yet come. The time has not yet come. Uh, when Jesus' mother came to Jesus right at the beginning of chapter 2 and asked him to fix the problem at the wedding, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. In chapter 7, when his brothers wanted him to go to Jerusalem to do the powerful miracles, Jesus said, my time has not yet come. When the crowds tried to seize Jesus in chapter 7, his time had not yet come. But in John chapter 10, it tells us right, that he has all these sheep that he has to bring into the sheep pen. And it seems as if the coming of the Greeks signifies that the sheep who are outside of the pen but who are coming in have started to come in. And so the hour has come for Jesus to die. All the pieces are now in place. Uh, Judas with his greed, Jesus his body anointed, the Pharisees ready to kill him, Jesus now in Jerusalem. The hour is now right, and it, the hour has now come not because that all of history is sort of coming together by chance, but because God has put it this way, and Jesus is obedient to God. You know, it's like, um, uh, you know, when you, when you hear Makan Sutra, right? Makan Sutra is not very popular anymore, but I always, you know, you see it when you go to the hawker store, right? There's this, you know, die, die, must try, right? It's like Jesus is die, die, must die, right? He must, now the hour has come, the, 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 you know, there is no more waiting. He must go to the cross. But look at what it says here in verse 27. He says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? God, Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
Now, that's so remarkable, right? Because in verse 23, Jesus says the very same thing. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, what a unique thing to say. In the whole history of man, could we ever say that death is a glorifying thing? I remember um, if you ever go and visit people who are dying, and I've and I visited a few over the years, how do people like to remember those who are dying? Right, so, you know, you go to see old people's houses and whatever, and there are always pictures of them in the prime of their youth. I don't know, when they're fit, when they're sportsmen, when they're successful at work, or even when you turn the newspapers to the obituary, you never see the picture of the person lying in the hospital bed with their cheeks sunken and, and, and all the tubes running in their body. You always see them as young and, and fit and vibrant. Right? Because life is glorious. Death is not glorious. But Jesus says here that the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified is now. The Son of Man has come for this very hour. Glorify your name, Father. Now what makes the death of Jesus so glorious? What makes it so glorious? Well, he says there in verse 24, isn't it? Very truly I tell you all, if you want to read the original, it means Amen, Amen. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The death of Jesus is glorious because it gives new life. Many seeds. Jesus had said before, I am the bread of life, I am the water of life, I am the light of life, I am the resurrection and the life. But it's only through his death that he is able to say those things. He gives life through His death. And that's why His death is so glorious. But more than that, as you can see in verse 30, His death doesn't just give us eternal life, but His death gives us victory over the prince of this world. He says there in verse 30 and 31, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time of judgment on this world. Now is the prince of this world driven out. See, life can only be achieved when Satan is defeated. See, sin and death are intimately and intrinsically linked. Right? Without solving the problem of sin, you cannot solve the problem of death. The two things are tied together. At the cross, Jesus defeats the power of Satan and sin to bring us eternal life. And therefore, it is truly glorious. Because we cannot defeat death on our own and neither can we defeat the prince of this world, Satan. But it's only through the death of Jesus that we can have victory. Now, I know that the the death of Jesus is a very, very sensitive topic and it offends people. There are some religions in this world, including Islam, which reject that Jesus could die on the cross. There are some religions and some sects which say it was, it was not Jesus who died on the cross, it was only someone who looked like Jesus who died on the cross. Maybe Judas died on the cross, 
or the Holy Spirit got someone else to die on the cross. Because it is inconceivable that God's prophet or messenger or whatever, or more than that, God's son, should ever be allowed to die such a, a disgraceful and ignominious death on the cross. It is just too embarrassing and too disgraceful. But the Bible tells us something very different. That the death of Jesus may be an embarrassment, it may be a disgrace and ignominy for us, but it is a glory for Jesus. It is a glorious act. It is His most glorious act because through His death on the cross, it brings us life. It defeats Satan, the prince of this world. Now, Jesus, as He shares this, invites the crowd and says to come into the light, come into the life, get out of darkness, get out of death. And in order to do that, in order to to benefit from this glorious act of Jesus, He demands three things. First of all, in verse 25, He demands something very easy, right? No, it's not easy at all. He says, Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Or anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, what does this mean? I'm sure for those of you in your Bible study groups, you would have pondered long and hard about what Jesus means. What does it mean to, to love your life and to lose it and to hate your life, but to keep it? Does that mean that we are to, to hate ourselves? You know, we are to have low self-esteem. Uh, we cannot enjoy life. You can't enjoy a good meal. You can't enjoy going to the beach. You can't enjoy kicking a soccer ball. You have to feel depressed all the time. Right? You must hate yourself all the time. No, I don't think so, right? Because I don't think verse 25 is to be read on its own. See, verse 25 and verse 26 are complementary verses. They, they read into each other and they inform about each other. And what he's saying is, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to serve Jesus, then as a hyperbole, you must hate your life. Right? I don't think he's, Jesus is saying, just hate your life, full stop. That's the way to be saved. He's saying that to follow Jesus and to love Jesus, it is to love Him so much and to serve Him so much that your life in this world, by comparison, it is hated. I remember uh, just recently, if you've been reading, uh, there was a terrible massacre in uh, a university in Kenya where many, many Christians were killed. I have a classmate of mine uh, who I, I pray for who serves in Nairobi in Kenya. And he, he's been writing his prayer letters for quite a while now about many things that trouble him in Kenya. And I remember reading in the newspapers about how at the university, when uh, the, apparently the terrorists had about eight hours to kill people, that's a long time to kill people, right? They, had, they killed over hundreds of people. They would actually separate the Christians and, and, and ask the Christians, were they really Christians? And if you confess Jesus, you would die. Now, as I was preparing this sermon, I thought, well, that is the most obvious example that we can think of, isn't it? Do you hate your life so much? Because you follow Jesus, that you're willing to give it up for Him. That your, your following of Jesus is so absolute that by contrast, your life is hated. 
I think that's the absolute demand that Jesus is saying here, isn't it? If you want your eternal life, then you must be willing to give up of your life here. But obviously, I think that, uh, I hope anyway, and I, and I think that living in Singapore, hopefully we will never encounter that situation that uh, those students encountered in Kenya. But I think that for ourselves here as we live in Singapore, I think it's quite a simple, similar situation, isn't it? Because we put ourselves at the, at, the, at the center of everything that we do. But I think what Jesus is demanding here in the next slide is that we put Jesus at the center of everything that we do and that by putting him at the center of everything that we do, everything else that flows out comes from our allegiance to Jesus because it is through following Jesus that it rules and subjugates and makes everything else bow down before him. That we're willing even to hate our lives by contrast. Well, that's what Jesus requires. If you want to share in the glory of his death and what he's achieved, then it's an absolute following of Jesus. Nothing else can rival following Jesus. In verse 43, we come across a very troubling section. You see, because in verse 43, when you first read it, it seems very positive, but then when you actually reflect on it a bit more, it's a very troubling and disturbing thing. At the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. So at first reading, when you read this, you think, well, it's pretty, pretty positive, I think. Uh, because there, there, there are many people who, who believed in Jesus, even from among the leadership. But then you, you read again and you say, hold on a second. Well, what does it mean that they didn't want to openly acknowledge their faith? And even worse, 43. Uh, it's not that uh, uh, they, they, they didn't acknowledge because they had little voice, but because they loved human praise more than the praise from God. Because that sort of shows that they don't really hate their life very much, is it? That their allegiance to Jesus, their following of Jesus, is actually not really absolute at all because... Uh, there's something more important than, their, than, than following Jesus, which was the praise of, of man and their fear of man. And I think for ourselves that can be the case as well. The hating of our lives means that we are less it is less important for us what people think than what God thinks. And our faith in Jesus is able to overcome the fear of what people think. I remember for myself, I get tested too in this. I remember I was, I, 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 I was playing golf with some a group of people and I was sharing my faith with them and uh, got, things got a bit tense at one point in time and I was thinking, well, you know, maybe if I keep sharing, I won't be invited to play golf with them anymore. I thought, well, I'll, I'll lose my, my, my golf game. Right. And, and I think that in so many ways, in so many small ways, we get tested at various points in our lives because we may have to lose things and hate things which we find valuable to follow Jesus. Right? We may say things and not get invited to, to things that we would like very much to be invited to. I remember when I was studying in Australia, uh, one of the most um, famous people 
in my school was uh, this guy who was called uh, Nick Far Jones. You can look him up. And he was uh, the captain of Australia rugby team. So that's a very, very... I mean, there's nothing in Singapore because I guess Australia rugby is very, very important. And to be captain of the rugby team of Australia is even like the pinnacle. It's probably, probably more important than the Prime Minister of Australia. Okay. Anyway, for many years, uh, the coach of the Australian rugby team was this guy called Alan Jones. And Alan Jones was a fierce anti-Christian. And even though Nick Farr Jones was in the team, he, um, he was not appointed captain for many years because he was a Christian. Uh, if you read his autobiography, and uh, you can look it out on the internet as well, uh, Alan Jones refused to appoint uh, Nick Farr Jones to be the captain because he was a Christian. But yet, Nick Farr Jones remained a Christian and remains a Christian till this day. And I think that that's something that, uh, to me, uh, speaks of this passage, isn't it? That would you be willing to to follow Jesus even to the extent of hating uh, being captain of Australia. Right? I mean, not that you want to be captain of Australia, but I'm saying that in the equivalent way, right? would you be willing to give up something as, as, as prized as that in order to follow Jesus? Because I think that's what Jesus demands. Now, last of all, the last thing that Jesus says is in verse 47 to 50. If anyone hears my word but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to, the, to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge who, for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Now I think that within the context of what Jesus is saying here, as he challenges the crowd, is that following Jesus is a lot more than just an abstract concept. It's very easy to say, I follow Jesus, but what sort of Jesus uh, do you follow? To follow Jesus is to follow his words. To accept Jesus is to accept his words. No more, no less. And the reason why Jesus says that is that if you reject Jesus' words, you are actually rejecting the words of God the Father himself. Now how serious would that be that if you were to reject God himself and his instructions? Now I know that today, this increasingly is very, very important. I, I sent out this article last week. In the, you can see it, it's in your emails for those of you who are on the, the email list. And the battleground for many Christians around the world today, especially in the West, is in the area of sexuality, right? And I've seen, I think that sooner or later it's going to arrive in Singapore. So whether you live in Vancouver or London or New York or LA or you know, even in Sydney or Melbourne, these, this is the struggle that Christians face. Because as Christians, uh, if we believe the words of the Bible and we believe the words of Jesus, we believe that sexuality in some forms is a sin and is wrong. But increasingly in the West, if you were to say that 
some sexual relations, some relationships are sinful, you would face huge disapproval from society. And even now, uh, maybe in America and other places, you might even face legal persecution. So the great temptation that many churches have is that I will follow Jesus, but I will not follow his words. I will follow Jesus, but I will accept all forms of sexuality as approved and appropriate and endorsed by God. But I think that this is where the stakes of John chapter 12 are very high. Because Jesus says very clearly, right? If you hear my words and you do not keep them, then God will judge you for it. You cannot say, I follow Jesus, but I do not want to listen to his words. Now, in conclusion, what we said here today is not just information, right? The death of Jesus is not just a historical fact, it's just something that we know we have for our own information. Look at what Jesus says in verse 44, right? Jesus cried out. Now, Jesus didn't speak softly and just give information. He cried out to them because these people, right, in verse 42 and 43, were not listening to him and they were following the society. They were following because of the fear of being cast out of the synagogue and they wanted the praise of human people instead. And he cries out to them, right, with passion, with urgency, with, with great feeling, because he wants them to be saved. He wants them to benefit from his death. He cries out to them and he says, whoever believes in me does not believe in, only me, in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. See, Jesus here really cares. Listen to his word because he wants you to move out of the darkness into the light. Now, in order to do that, to benefit from his death on the cross, let us truly follow and accept Jesus and hate our life in order to get eternal life. Let us hear the words of Jesus and keep them. Let us not fear man or love human praise but rather let us let us long to hear the praise from god let's go to god in prayer dear father as we come before you today how amazing it is that death can be glorious and the death of your son jesus is glorious because when he dies, many seeds come to life. There is much fruit. And this is the fruit of eternal life. Dear Father, give us this fruit. Give us this eternal life. Help us to, to see that the death of Jesus achieves what we could not achieve ourselves. The salvation of our souls, the defeat of death, the defeat of the prince of this world. Help us to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus so much that by comparison we hate our life in this world. That we are willing to reject 
praise from man in order to hear your praise. That we fear you more than we fear the world. That we'll be willing to hear the words of Jesus and accept them, to take them to heart and to let it be the sole guide to everything that we do in this life. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.